0: Welcome to the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University.
1: And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University.
0: We're here with a very special guest, uh, Professor N.T. Wright. is uh, Research Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews, a uh, Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall of Oxford, uh, he's not only a wonderful New Testament scholar, but he's a, a thoroughgoing churchman, too. Prior to this, he was the Bishop of Durham in England for the Anglican Church. Uh, he's written a wonderful new book uh, that we wanted to highlight uh, in, our, in our conversation here entitled God and the Pandemic, subtitled A Christian Reflection on the Coronavirus and Its Aftermath. Professor Wright, we are so glad to have you on with us. Thank you so much for coming on with us, for writing this terrific book. It's not only wonderful reflection on the pandemic that we're facing at present, but it's a wonderful model of how to do theology well.
2: Well, thank you. It's very kind. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you.
0: So let me, let me start with this. Uh, what, are th- what are some things that we can learn from the early history of the church about how followers of Jesus responded to serious sickness in their communities.
2: Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we are always in danger of thinking that if something bad happens, it's because God has got it in for us or God is wanting us to repent or something like that. And there are moments in the New Testament when we see little bits of that, when Paul says that uh, uh, in Corinth, some of you are weak and ill and some have died because you're messing around with the Lord's Supper and you're not uh, observing um, the 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 right uh, way that you should be performing celebrating that. Um, but mostly when bad things happen, the early church doesn't say, uh, oh, dear, it's because we've sinned. It says, what can we do to see if we can help? And my parade example is from Acts 11, when they hear there's going to be a famine right across the whole region. The church in Antioch doesn't say, oh, this must mean that the Lord is coming back. Nor does, nor do they say, oh, this is because we have all been terribly bad and we need to repent of something. They say, who's going to be most at risk? What can we do to help and who shall we send? And it's very practical. And I think one of the things I really like about Acts is that that practical approach, which then continues right through the early church from the New Testament on the next several centuries... Is that they see this as uh, not an adjunct to the gospel, but as part of the gospel itself, because the gospel is all about new creation. Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. What matters is new creation. And for them, new creation is not just something you sit back and let happen to you. It's something that, by the Holy Spirit, um, because you're caught up in the movement of the love of God, you get on and do what you can. And so we find right across the early church that sense of Um, actually, this is a new day and we can help. And There is such a thing as medicine and education and looking after the poor. And we're not just going to hang our heads and say, oh, dear, this is terrible. And so there's a very practical spirit led response, which I find very refreshing. And of course, there's more to say than that. But that's a good place to start.
0: Yeah, now, it seems to me that their their response was actually quite different than the cultural norm at that time. Tell us a little bit about how, Mm. how the church contrasted with what was the norm in the Greco-Roman world at that time,
2: yeah. The, the norm in the Greco-Roman world was that if there was a famine or a flood or a fire or an earthquake or or a plague, then people tended to say it's because the gods are angry. And uh, every city had its own gods and goddesses, as well as the main ones, uh, Zeus and Poseidon and uh, uh, Mars and all the rest of them. And so it was assumed that there was some god who had it in for you, and so they would ask the priests, who were often local magistrates as well, if they would do some clever bit of magic, maybe uh, offer a sacrifice and inspect its insides. And then the priests would say, ah, it's because last year we didn't keep the festival of such and such properly. So we have to do that now. And we have to offer some sacrifices to apologize to the gods. And that's just absolutely standard. So much so that the Christians actually get in trouble in the uh, early days of Christianity, because, of course, one of the main things that marked out the early Christians was that they didn't worship the, the normal pagan gods. Now, the, the Jews didn't either, but the Jews had kind of done a deal with the Roman Empire that that was all right as long as they prayed for Rome and for Caesar. They didn't have to pray to Rome. But people were still suspicious. They thought that the Jews were, were letting the side down. It's like somebody who doesn't pay their taxes, you know, and the neighbors think they're getting away with it. And so when bad things happen, oh, it's their fault. Everyone's pointing the finger and maybe throwing stones as well. So that, that that's the norm in the ancient world, and the Christians really stand out against that. It's not that the Christians don't believe in repentance, they do. It's that everything now hinges on the message concerning Jesus. There is one God who is, you see this in Paul's address on the Areopagus in Athens in Acts 17. There is one God, he has made the world, he's calling the world to account. And he's doing this not by fire and earthquakes and famines or whatever, but simply through the message of of Jesus. Of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Uh, And what we see then, it's a very interesting hermeneutical exercise, because in the Old Testament, of course, there are plenty of places like the book of Amos, where it's clear the people of God have sinned and are being called to repent. Um, Fair enough. okay. And Jesus does a very little bit of that um in in john chapter 5 he says to the crippled man who he's healed don't sin again lest something worse happen to you but actually his norm is to say no it wasn't this person who sinned nor his parents this is john 9 but so that god's works might be revealed in him so jesus is not looking back and saying oh who are we going to point the finger at jesus is always looking on and saying what is god now going to do Uh, and and then It's such an amazing story in John's gospel when you get then Jesus going to Bethany and weeping at the tomb of his friend, Um, not because he doesn't know what to do, but because he does know what to do. But he grieves over the present state of the world. And there's that sense of the forward looking hope coupled with the present lament and that's what we find again and again in the new testament
1: dr wright there was a recent la times article about what people think god is saying to them during this time about Mm -hmm. how things need Mm -hmm. to change etc and what the article said the coronavirus has prompted almost two-thirds of american believers of all faiths to feel god is telling humanity to change how it lives i'm curious what you make of that biblically speaking
2: well, biblically speaking, God is always telling people to change how they live, but he normally does that through what we call the gospel of Jesus, and uh, not normally through the extraordinary things that happen in the world. Of course, if there is uh, a fault to be laid, we don't yet know, the research isn't in, but if it can be demonstrated that somebody somewhere has been terribly negligible in doing things to allow this virus out, then we need to get to the bottom of that. And globally, we need to work together. And I know that people criticize the World Health Organization, but it's the only one we've got at the moment. But we need to strengthen our international uh, uh, bonds like that uh, to say what has gone wrong and how can we make sure that doesn't happen again? Um, Like, you know, if there's an aeroplane crash, Um, And then if the same model crashes again, as has happened recently, we we don't say, oh, this is because we've allowed gay marriage or, or, oh, this is because we've been um, pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. We say whoever was manufacturing these planes has got some hard questions to answer. Um, So that's that's always there. But I think what I'm hearing from America, I'm not hearing it in Britain because we don't tend to react like uh, Americans do to this. But what I'm hearing from many friends in America is people deducing all sorts of things. And it tends to be that the coronavirus is giving them a megaphone to say more loudly what they wanted to say anyway, whether it's about global pollution or about gay marriage or whatever it is. and I, I just don't think that's how it works. If you look back through church history, there have been many, many epidemics, pandemics, plagues, etc. And no doubt in some cases, they are a warning about uh, health care, about hygiene, whatever that may be. That That's fine. But here's the thing. Back to Jesus again. Jesus gave us this amazing prayer to pray day by day, which I and millions of other Christians, I expect you guys to pray every day and that says, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. It's not that we wait for some terrible event to say, oh dear, we have to pray that now God's kingdom is going to come. We should be praying that every day. And likewise, we pray, forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. We don't wait for some terrible thing to say, oh, we've now got to repent of the way we've been living. We ought to be repenting of the way we've been living every day and asking ourselves the hard questions every day. And if it takes a pandemic to make us pray the Lord's Prayer and actually think about what we're saying, then shame on us. We ought to have been paying attention sooner. That This isn't to say that God can't suddenly, if he wants, jog our elbow or or, uh, wrap our knuckles and say, hey, pay attention. I'm trying to tell you something. God can do whatever he wants. But I think it's far too easy just to jump in and say, oh, this is a special sign of something. Um, I, I think we need to be more nuanced than that, basically more biblical than that. That's the bottom line for me.
0: Tom, you suggest early on in your book that uh, the the, que- the question we ought to be asking in the midst of this pandemic is not why, but what. Uh Spell out a little bit more what you mean by that uh, and how that connects with uh, what the early church had done.
2: Yeah, um, well, it goes back to something I was saying before, that in the early church, one of the fascinating things that uh, not a lot of people know this because the early church history is not well known in the second and third centuries when the Roman officials were trying to stamp out Christianity. One of the reasons that Christianity uh, spread was because every time there was an epidemic or a plague or something that would strike a city, the normal response was, as I said before, people would say the gods must be angry, what we're we going to do? But before you even get there, the rich and well to do, including the doctors, would get out of town fast and would flee to their country homes and get up into the hills where the air was clearer or whatever. Um, Because they didn't want to be infected by the disease. And the Christians, right from early on, would stay and would nurse people. This has all been written up by historians, but as I say, it isn't that well known. And uh, Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, has a whole chapter on this. And so often the Christians would be the ones who were nursing the victims who'd fallen sick. And people were astonished. They said, Why are you doing that? You know, we didn't like you. We thought you were disreputable. So why are you being kind to us? And they would say, Well, we follow this man, Jesus, who gave his life to save us and you too, by the way. And so that's what we have to do. And if it means that we catch the disease and die, well, so we catch the disease and die. But we are going to show you that there is a God who actually loves you rather than the malevolent, angry old gods that you believed in up to this point. And this made a huge impact. It's one of the things that caused Christianity to spread, because when the plague was over, people would say, what was that all about? Those people were were caring for us. They were loving us and, and they were looking after us, even though we, we had been uh, cruel to them. And so that that coupled with the fact that the Christians anyway just made a habit of caring for the poor, they made a habit of looking out for who was poor in the society and seeing what could be done to help them, not just to give them little handouts, but actually to help them in practical ways and so on. Um, and so it's it's that sense of what is God calling us to do, which then calls forth Um, The whole business of the kingdom of God, that God is taking charge of the world and the way he does it is through Jesus followers doing the Jesus stuff in practical terms in the world. Of course, not to the exclusion of prayer, not to the exclusion of telling people that they need to repent and believe. That's all part of the deal. But it makes its way in the world like Jesus himself made his way in the world. By celebrating the kingdom through healing, through celebrations of new creation, through parties with repentant sinners, whatever it was, Um, and it's it's very striking when you see how the early church went about it.
0: One of the things I particularly appreciated that you emphasize in the book is is the emphasis on what God what God is doing in the midst of events like this. He does through human beings. It's not that God does something sort of in in isolation from what from how yeah. he works through. But but what he's doing is is centered on on how he works through through the people of God and through human beings. But I think we, yes. we often miss that point. We sort of we expect God to be doing something sort of separate and distinct from what he might be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think we miss that point, which is so obvious? I- in the life of the right. early church, I,
2: I think that's. It's I like the way you put that, that. That's. It's very interesting historically. There are two different things going on. On the one hand, there is the long legacy of the Protestant Reformation, which I honor, which says we are justified by faith, not by works. But that has often now been construed to mean, therefore, we should only be concentrating on quote spiritual. Issues, unquote, and leave any practical issues to social services, to the politicians, to uh, the hospital system, whatever it may be. Um, And that's a complete travesty of justification by faith. And if you look at Martin Luther himself, and I quote him in the book, uh, Luther himself was very concerned. Obviously, he believed passionately in justification by faith, not works. But then, once you got that settled, then there are people hurting out there. And because we believe in a God of love and because he has given us his spirit, It's our task to go and help in whatever way we can and be be wise about it, wise as serpents and innocent as doves in how we go about that. But the second thing is, and, and I think this is particularly so in the modern West in Britain and America, ever since the 18th century, people have tended to think theologically first about God as creator and provider with all the problems that that has got to do with it. And then putting Jesus in quite a separate sort of box so that first you think about how is God running the world and how does God act in the world as though that is always God acting from outside the world Um, acting on the world from the outside, and then the whole question of Jesus comes as a separate category. But in the New Testament, it's never like that. Um, this, This is a problem ever since the deism of the 18th century, the Epicureanism of the 18th century, which is very strong in Britain and particularly in the States, that people have tended to see the doctrine of providence simply as about God the Father and how he runs the world, rather than a Jesus-shaped doctrine? The answer to this is very simple. It goes back to Genesis 1. When God makes this wonderful world, he puts into it creatures made in his own image. And being in God's image means to be God reflectors. It's like uh, an image in a temple, which is there in order to show the world who the God is and to receive the praises of the world on behalf of the God. That's what humans are in this world for, to to be living demonstrations to the wider world of who the true God is so that one might almost say that though of course God the creator does a million things which we don't help with um, you know it wasn't your or my goodwill that made the sunrise this morning uh, nevertheless there's a great deal that God the creator wants to do and is doing in the world through human beings and the whole theme of wisdom in the Old Testament this is what it's all about God by wisdom made the earth and now he gives wisdom to his human creatures in order that they may be his wise sub-rulers, as it were, ruling under his authority over his world. But ruling not in the bullying sense of ruling, but ruling in the wise, loving sense. And, And once you start to see this, it's all the way through... The, the whole Bible. you know, in, in Revelation 5, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb in order to be the royal priesthood, not in order to lie back and just gaze at God forever. Yes, of course, we will enjoy the vision of God in the whole new creation, but already we are to be the royal priesthood. And I fear that a great many Christians have never even begun to think of what that actually means in practice.
1: When I look at your book on on God and the Pandemic, one of the things you do is you start in the Old Testament, you work through Jesus, go to the New Testament, you kind of have this sweeping, broad approach to Scripture and place the circumstances around with this pandemic in the middle of it. Why do you approach it that way, and why is it important for Christians to think about this, not just isolating verses, but seeing the sweeping narrative of Scripture?
2: the The isolated verses mean what they mean in context. If you take verses out of their context, you can make them stand on their heads and dance to your tunes and do all sorts of things and uh, The early church was very clear that the great story of Israel and God in the Old Testament. Um, which was their basic Bible, has reached its climax in Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so that the Old Testament was never, for the early Christians, uh, a miscellaneous rag bag of, of, of proof texts for this or that. It was always the earlier bits of the story which explain why the Jesus event means what it means. And then in the light of that, they move forward in the power of the Spirit into uh, this strange, new world, which is the new creation, which is the beginning of the launching of the kingdom of God, uh, which is rooted in the Old Testament. But all of that has come rushing together, funneled together in this one small, sharp, revelatory event of Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection. So I'm simply reading the Bible the way that I think the early church teaches me to read the Bible. And of course, there are many verses in the Old Testament which you can take out of context and they will still speak to you and The Psalms and Proverbs are full of uh, such lines which jump across the ages and still speak to us. But the broad sweep of Scripture means what it means as, as it presents itself as, that great story from creation to new creation, from covenant to new covenant, always with Jesus himself in the middle. And then following up from what Jesus does, the Spirit enabling Jesus' followers to be Jesus' people for the world. That is how the whole thing works, and I, I'm. It occurred to me as I was writing the book that, in a sense, it's like a, a very small microcosmic lesson in what we loosely call hermeneutics, the, the science of understanding scripture.
1: That's really, really helpful. Let me let me ask you to ap- apply that thinking to a passage that is so often cited when there's difficulty and tragedy. Mm-hmm. Romans eight twenty eight, of course, God works all things together mm-hmm. for the good. What's the context of that verse, and how should we use it or not use it in tragedies like this?
2: Well, now you're talking. That verse is a very complex little bit of Greek, and very often it's been taken out of context, and often it's been understood as the King James version translates it, which is to say, we know that all things work together for good. Now, the Greek. Um, of that verse by itself is ambiguous. It could mean all things work together for good, or it could mean God works all things together for good. It could even mean, and some have argued this, that the Spirit works all things together for good. In the book, as you'll have seen, I have argued, following some very recent scholarship, including some friends of mine who've worked in detail on this more recently than I have, um, that for a start, it really is God working all things together for good. But then the crucial thing is, the next line which is normally God works all things together for good for those who love him. Um, but actually, the word for working together is a Greek word, which normally means we're going into partnership on this. Paul talks about his fellow workers, his sunergoi, and it's that's the noun, but it's the same verb here, synergoi, to work together and to work together takes in greek it's the dative case of the person that you work together with and in the context in romans 8 romans 8:26 8, and 27 is this fascinating passage where paul has been talking about the groaning of the whole creation and then he's talking about the groaning of the church. You know, when we Christians look at the world in pain, the temptation is to say, oh, this is because the world has been misbehaving and God is punishing them. And we Christians sit on the side and wring our hands and say, how terrible. But that's not so at all. Paul says, we ourselves groan within ourselves as we await our redemption, the, 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 the our resurrection, the, the redemption of our bodies. That's the hope we were saved in. And then you might say, well, what is God doing? While the world is in pain and while the church is in pain, the answer is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit is groaning within the church, within the world, so that the calling of the church is to be the people of lament at the point where the world is in pain. And that's a very profound statement of the Christian calling. And Paul, at that point, alludes to Psalm 44, which he's got in his mind because he's going to quote it towards the end of the chapter. And Psalm 44 is a classic psalm of lament, where the, the psalmist is not lamenting because he, the psalmist, has sinned and he's saying, sorry... On the contrary, he's saying, actually, these bad things have happened to us and we have not been false. We have not gone back on the covenant. We have done what we were meant to do. So now what's going on? And so Paul says that the spirit groans within us with inarticulate groanings. And then he says, the one who searches the hearts, that's the allusion to Psalm 44, knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. And Which, which, I mean, this is just fascinating, that God the Father knows what is the mind of the Spirit, but the mind of the Spirit at that point is inarticulate, because it's just, uh, it's groanings. There are no words for the pain which God the Spirit is expressing at that point. And it's in that context that you get verse 28, and right at the front of the verse in Greek, it's uh, with those who love God, which must be an allusion to this sense that we are called to be the people who are part of this extraordinary conversation between the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit groaning, and the Father knowing what the groaning is all about. And we are called to be people caught up in that, not to give glib answers and say, yes, we know what you ought to be repenting of, or, or whatever it is, but to learn how to lament. It's very interesting, in the last generation, there's been some really good books written on lament, including some really fine studies of lament by American theologians, and people have been sending sending them to me, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and it seems to me this is a lesson the church really, really needs to learn, so that it's... It's then, when we are being the people of lament, the people of prayer at the place where the world is in pain, then Paul says, God is working with us who thereby love God so that then good things will emerge from this time of lament. So that's how Romans 8.28 works. And we are called according to God's purpose, not in order to be separate from the world and to go off and, and relax and enjoy ourselves, but in order to be God's people for his new creation. And that's ultimately what glorification in Romans 8.30 is all about. Th- th- this is, of course, a huge topic which we could spend all day on. But that verse 8.28, I'm glad you brought that up because that is so crucial in this whole thing.
0: Tom, one final question for you. Uh, and it's it's in two parts. Uh, first would be sort of what what's the one thing that troubles you the most about how the church is responding to this pandemic? And then, on the other side of the coin what what's the one thing that stands out to you that gives you encouragement and hope amidst yes. amidst this <laughs> pandemic?
2: Well, it's interesting. Uh, (laughs) I'm tempted to drop a name here because I'm sure he wouldn't mind, but I, I, I did something for the Archbishop of Canterbury recently. He's got a a whole program called Thy Kingdom Come, which runs from Ascension Day, which is tomorrow, through to Pentecost, which is a week on Sunday. And it's online resources and it's special prayers and so on. And I've done some Bible expositions for that, which people can log on to and so on. And Anyone listening, if you want to log on to Thy Kingdom Come and have a look, it's all there. But uh, the, the Archbishop and I were talking about this little book, which I'd written, because he's received some flack because of his Following the government guidelines in saying that churches should stay locked for the moment, because we cannot deep clean churches. So, however much we distance ourselves from one another socially, there's still going to be the risk of infection, etc. And he's come in for a lot of of anger and hostility, and that has really grieved me because at a time when the church ought to be pulling together and turning its frustration into lament, instead people have been turning their frustration into anger. And I know that some people on both sides of the Atlantic have seen this as a, as a plot, um, a, a, as a plot to take away our freedoms or whatever it is. And I think there's some right wing groups in America who feel that more strongly even than some do in Britain. So, so the, the sense that where there should have been lament, there has instead been anger, that is really, really sad. But to go back to him, I was talking to the Archbishop Justin Welby about this, and he shared with me, and I think it is now in the public domain. What he has been doing in this time of the coronavirus, his the place where he lives, Lambeth Palace in central London, is right next door to one of the big hospitals, St Thomas's Hospital, and he has been volunteering as a nurse in the COVID-19 wards. Throughout this pandemic, he's been going in for some time, most days, putting on the protective equipment, being with people who are dying or near death, uh, praying with them, sharing the gospel with them, and also being with the carers, being with the doctors and nurses who are there on the front line. And it seems to me that is precisely what the early church did. And to have the archbishop, who people tend to think he's so great and good and high and mighty, he would stay in his ivory tower. Not a bit of it. He's down there on the front line. And, and I really want to say, um, you know, as uh, I quote the poem from Malcolm Geit in the book, uh, where is Jesus? Well, he's, he's not confined by the fact that our churches are locked up. He is out there on the front line with the health workers. He is out there dying with the dying and grieving with the grieving. And I think that is just so encouraging to see the leader of the church to which I belong actually taking that seriously and getting on and doing it. So very practical but also very hopeful. Yeah, that,
0: that's a remarkable model. That's a, uh, I'm, I'm so glad I'm so glad you dropped that particular name. Um, well, <laughs> okay, well, Tom. Thank, you. Good, thank good. you so much for coming on with us. So appreciate your, your thank book. Thank you. I want to recommend to our listeners uh, "God in the Pandemic," subtitle: A Christian Reflection on the Coronavirus and Its Aftermath. It's great stuff. Very very practical, but also really rich theologically. Uh, and you'll get, a, you'll get a good model on how to do theology well. So, please. Bless you.
2: Thank you very much.
0: This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Professor Tom Wright, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.